You're listening to the podcast from King's Cross Church in Charleston, South Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about us, visit kingscross.org. advantage of that as we uh, are beginning. I know Josh announced that last week, and so some of you have already been following along. You uh, Today is the seventh day of your first week, and you're ready to see whether or not I handle this text correctly, which is great. Um, praise the Lord for that. Uh, others of you may not have known about that. Maybe you weren't here last week, or but I hope that you will take advantage of that as we will spend the next um, six or eight weeks, something like that, walking our way through uh, the book of James. And so hope you'll take advantage of that. If you don't know me, my name's Chip. Uh, I'm also one of the pastors here. I was reminded, Timothy, um, of, uh, he said he teaches at Bethlehem Seminary, uh, Latin and Greek, which means he is considerably smarter than me or anyone else who uh, is on our staff. Uh, maybe I shouldn't speak for them. They're smarter than me. Anyway, but what it reminded me of was years ago when I was in seminary, I was up in Washington, D.C. I was sitting down at dinner having a conversation with a couple of brothers who were at Bethlehem. And we were talking about what classes we were taking. And so I was telling them, I, I, I think at the time I was in an Old Testament class, um, and they said, oh, how did you like Hebrew and Greek? And I said, well, I haven't taken them yet. And they were stunned, these Bethlehem seminary students, that I would be allowed to study the Bible without having already mastered Greek and Hebrew. Uh, and so every time I hear that somebody's at Bethlehem Seminary, I just think big brain. <laughs> because Hebrew and Greek, uh, Rob and I were just having a conversation. Like, I took them. I got through them. That was the end of that uh, story. So I'm so thankful for people who translated the Bible into English <laughs> um, and into French. And so I would just encourage you uh, again, as Josh did, um, if you are stirred up, maybe you have a heart for French-speaking people. Maybe you have a heart for the continent of Africa or the country of Cameroon in particular. Or maybe you have a heart for education and training, whatever it might be. If the, if the Spirit's stirring something up in you, um, to talk to the Davies after uh, church out in the lobby and see how you can get plugged in. Um, we, uh, for those of you who were here on Friday night, we had a blast at movie night. Yes, uh, that was great. I know that not everybody can come to that. And so I uh, hope you'll keep an eye out for maybe our next programming event. We try really hard not to over-program your calendars at King's Cross. We want you to be spending time uh, with people like your family, um, people like your neighbors. Uh, but what we try to do three or four times a year is have some type of fellowship event that you can not only come to to build your relationships with one another, but also that you can invite um, your neighbors and coworkers and family and friends who maybe don't have a church home or maybe they're a little skeptical about coming on a Sunday morning for whatever reason. And maybe if you're able to say, hey, we have this oyster roast, hey, we have this women's retreat, hey, we have this movie night, that it's an easier invite. And so I hope that when we have these fellowship events like movie night, that when you hear these announcements or you see the emails that come to us uh, or come to you, that you're not, your first thought is not, will I like that? I hope that your first thought is, who do I know that would like that? And that you see that as an opportunity to invite people in uh, to the life of the church. There may be that there are some of you here because somebody who knows and loves you invited you. 
Uh, and so if that's the case, maybe today's your first week joining us. It's a great time to jump in. We're starting this new series uh, on the book of James. It's called Working Out Your Faith. It's written by a guy named James. See, you're like, this is like training here. See, like we're, we're, we're clipping along, right? <laughs> right? It's written by a guy named James. His nickname was James the Just which tells us that he had a pretty good reputation, right? He's the half-brother of Jesus. He was the leader in, or one of the leaders in, the church in Jerusalem, if you kind of read through uh, the early part of Acts. But like an awful lot of you, for a long time, he was a skeptic. In fact, for a long time, he did not believe at all that his half-brother Jesus was who he claimed to be. He did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In fact, Matthew 13, 55 tells us that at at least one point, James and his brothers and his mom, Mary, had gone and tried to get Jesus to stop saying that he was those things. If you look at James 1, 1, the opening greeting that he writes in the letter says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord and Christ are divine titles. They are a declaration in the first sentence of the letter that Jesus is one with God the Father and that he is the long-awaited Savior of the world. So raise your hand if you have a sibling. Okay, me too, right? I have one sister and I have two stepbrothers. Now, I don't know what it would take for you to worship your sibling as God. But for James, what it took was the bodily resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what moved James from being a skeptic to a believer that his brother Jesus was, in fact, Lord and Christ. After the resurrection, James believes, and he begins to help other people believe too. So if you are someone who struggles to believe, James is your guy. And this letter of his that we're going to work our way through um, over the next few weeks is one of the oldest letters that we have in the New Testament. It is almost certainly written within about 10 years of the ascension of Jesus back into heaven. But it is incredibly relevant to us today, 2,000 years later. So again, James 1.1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, Greetings. And we have a tendency to skip over things like that. But when James says to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, what he means is ethnically Jewish Christians. So ethnically Jewish people who had come to believe, like James, that Jesus of Nazareth was in fact the long-awaited Messiah, but they no longer live in and around Jerusalem. And here's why he's writing the letter to them. This initial spiritual high of the resurrection of Jesus and the launching of the church had begun to fade. And these new Christians had discovered, the farther they got kind of away from home base, that not everyone liked their faith. 
Not everyone was a fan. In fact, an awful lot of their neighbors and a lot of the people who were in leadership positions in the governments, in the towns, and the, and the precincts where they lived were outright against their faith. And suddenly, being a Christian and living like a Christian had become hard. Plus, there were some broader um, regional economic conditions that had taken a turn for the worse. And so many of these Christians found themselves struggling financially and dealing with all of the pressures that came with that. So you have these external spiritual and social and cultural and political pressures that are being applied and they wind up causing internal problems in the church. There's this growing gap between rich Christians and poor Christians. And it was causing resentment and mistrust and infighting. The farther some of these relatively new Christians, because everybody was a new Christian at the time, right? We're about a decade from the resurrection. Some of these new Christians, the farther they got away from their initial profession of faith, the more their lifestyle started to look more and more and more like the world and less and less and less like these gospel principles that they had been taught. And so what started to happen was inside the church, people were pointing fingers about who was really a Christian and who was not really a Christian based on their lifestyle. Now that's just hard to imagine, isn't it? Isn't it, like, can you imagine a situation in your wildest dreams, where people who claim to be followers of Christ allowed economic and social and cultural and political pressures to divide them and their churches. Can you imagine a situation where people who once walked closely with the Lord had begun to drift back into patterns of sin and worldliness? Can you just imagine a situation where people who love the Lord and believe the gospel were finding it hard to live out their faith in the midst of circumstances that were trying? I mean, don't you just praise God that we don't deal with these issues today? The book of James is going to challenge you and encourage you and warn you and correct you about the only thing that the book of James won't allow you to do is to assume that it doesn't apply to you. James comes out of the gate strong. He asks a very real, very practical question. How do you have faith when life is hard? And he shows us seven ways. And there really are seven. I'm not just trying to keep up with Dr. Hook from last week. So, he shows us seven ways. First, James says, you change your perspective. If you're going to have faith when life is hard, you have to change your perspective. He says in verse 2, Count it all joy, my brothers and brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. So these trials that they're dealing with, poverty, persecution, divisions in the church, Christians living like the world, a wobbling faith among some that's just barely holding on because life has gotten hard. These trials, James says, you count them as joy. Now that is not normal. That's not our default position. Amen? 
the lenses through which we are culturally conditioned to look as 21st century Western Christians, the, the way that, that we're just conditioned to assume life should be is an absence of suffering, or at least suffering that would be rare and temporary and quickly followed by a return to our default setting of comfort and an abundance of information by which when we do encounter troubles, we can diagnose them rightly, devise a solution to them, and manifest by our own hard work our preferred future. This is the way we see troubles. Life should include an absence of suffering and an abundance of information that allows us to cure it when it comes along. And that cultural lens that we just have, it's the air we breathe, causes us to view trials of various kinds as abnormal and confusing. We don't understand why the trial is happening, and we're angry that we don't understand why the trial is happening. Because we feel like we should be omniscient and have all the information. As James says, you have to change your perspective. You have to have this perspective shift that says, well, actually, trials are normal. And while you may not understand everything that's happening to you, God does. And that faith-based way of looking at hardships and struggles, James says, is going to produce joy in the heart and the mind of believers. Not emotional happiness. That's not what he's talking about but a disposition of joy that shapes how you go through life. So how do you have faith when life is hard? The first thing you have to do is change your perspective. He continues in verse 3. Four. So this is now the, the why. Count them as joy. Four. This is the, both the why and the how. It's the fuel for that perspective change. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you might become or that you might be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So how do you have faith when life is hard? Second, you build your endurance. Build your endurance. It's a well-established fact at King's Cross that I don't like to run. Yes, you all know me enough by now. But one time in my 30s, I ran a 5K, one off. And I prepped for it by using what at the time was a brand new app that some of you might remember called Couch to 5K. You all remember this? Yes. Okay. So I ran this 5K in just under 30 minutes down at Patriots Point. Now, don't laugh at me, Bobby. Right? <laughs> Bobby runs marathons in just under 30 minutes. But, so I ran this 5K in just under 30 minutes, but I went back and looked. The program that I followed to prepare for it was nine weeks long and included roughly 800 minutes of running. So 800 minutes of prep for a 30-minute race, was what they told me it was, right? Why? Because it took me some time to build up my endurance to be able to run for 30 minutes straight without stopping. And James says, that's what faith is like. Hardship and struggles... Trials of various kinds, grief, confusion, doubt, persecution, pain, 
They are the training ground where weak, out of shape, sitting on the couch faith builds itself up little by little into a steadfast and enduring faith that can run its race well. You have to build your endurance, James says. You remember when my friend Chris Gaynor um, was here a few weeks ago in the family series, and he said this, I can't shake it out of my head. He said, easy does not produce faith. An easy life does not produce faith. You don't build up spiritual endurance. Testing builds spiritual endurance. Testing and trials of various kinds builds steadfastness that leads to perfection and completion. And so James says, when these trials of various kinds come along, don't waste them. Don't don't despise them. Use them to build your endurance until you're perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So how are you going to have faith when life is hard? You change your perspective, you build your endurance, and third, James says, you ask for wisdom. You ask for wisdom. Look back at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom... If any of you in the room feel like in the season of life that you're in right now, you just don't know what to do, you feel confused, you feel stuck, you feel unsure, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James says, if your faith is being tested, turn to God and don't doubt. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a paradox to me. So, maybe you feel spiritually stuck. Or you're struggling with some sin that you just can't shake. And, or maybe you're someone who you would say, I am sick of my circumstances. Maybe you thought God was with you, but now you feel alone. Maybe you want to believe, but you're struggling to get there. Or you want to do God's will in this area of your life, but you can't discern whether or not this is what he's calling you to do. James says, you ask for wisdom and God will help you. But the way that you have to ask for wisdom is by exercising the faith that's barely hanging on. Well, that seems hard, doesn't it? That that seems like, well, my faith is struggling, so you're telling me to exercise it. Which is why the change in the perspective and the building of the endurance matters. Because you have to be able to tell yourself to keep going. You have to be able to tell yourself, to okay, I know that the next step I have to take in this race I'm running of faith is to ask God for wisdom. So here's the reality. In my experience, when faith is being tested, it is almost always because you lack one of three things. You lack knowledge. So you don't know everything fully. And your faith starts to shake because you feel like, You should have complete knowledge of everything. 
And if you don't, you start to distance yourself from or question or rebel against God. Or you lack perspective. You can't see everything rightly. You don't understand the bigger picture. And you get frustrated and you feel thin and weak spiritually because of it. Or you lack experience. You haven't learned how to walk through this particular season of life that you're in yet. In 10 or 15 years from now, when it comes back up again, you'll know how to do it. But this is the first time you've been, you lack knowledge, you lack perspective, or you lack experience. It's almost always one of those three when people's faith starts to just rattle. But God has perfect knowledge and a complete and totally perfect perspective. And God has infinite experience and knows all things. So James says, rather than relying on yourself, ask for wisdom. Ask God to give you a better understanding of what it is that's happening on you, to you. Ask God to give you a perspective so that you can see it more clearly. And ask him to show you what to do next. So you can build up the experience and the endurance that will make your faith steadfast. So one of the ways that you have faith when life is hard is not necessarily by seeking out some miraculous change in your circumstances or seeking out some miraculous deliverance from the trouble that you're in. It's by asking for wisdom in it. Asking for wisdom on how to get through it. Fourth, James says you cultivate humility. Cultivate humility. And the example that he's going to use or the, the acute situation to which he's applying humility in the life of the church that he's writing to um, is this growing division that has crept into the church over money. The, the income gap that is creating problems in the church and the outside economic pressures that are causing that. And so he applies this idea of cultivating humility to that particular situation. Look at verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. And what he means there is, let those Christians who are in lowly circumstances boast that they are exalted because they've been united with Christ. And let the rich in his humiliation... So he's saying if you have a higher station in life, what you need to boast in is your humiliation because you recognize that you need the gospel. And so you either boast in the fact that you've been united with a Savior who lifts you up, or you boast in the fact that you've been united with a Savior who met you in your spiritual humiliation. You with him? One guy in the back. Thank you, brother. All right. The rich in his, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass, he'll pass away. This is an Old Testament reference he's making. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It's the exact same thing that the Apostle Paul was talking about when he wrote over in Philippians 4, 12, and 13, verses that are maybe a little more familiar to you. Paul said, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That they are communicating the same idea. And so when it comes to money pressure, very often those who lack financial resources, what they think is, 
Money will solve my problems. And very often, those who have an abundance of resources tend to agree with that uh, notorious theologian, Biggie, and they say, mo money, mo problems. But James and Paul know that no matter what your circumstances in life may be, financially, socially, professionally, romantically, whatever situation, right? Paul says, in any and all circumstances, you have to learn to cultivate a gospel-driven humility. And it's the gospel that propels us to humility. Because the gospel says there isn't anything we can do to reconcile ourselves to God. We can't be good enough. We can't do enough good. We can't give enough away. We can't do anything to earn our salvation because Jesus has already done everything that's necessary for our salvation. But brothers and sisters, the gospel also says that Jesus has done everything necessary for our life too. Rightly understood, the gospel will lead both rich and poor, both the powerful and the oppressed, the mature Christian and the new believer alike to say, I need Jesus for life after death. But I also need Jesus for life before death. I need him to get through this thing that I'm in now. The gospel does not say, if you will, will rehearse this you know, scripted prayer, you can punch your ticket to heaven, then you're on your own for about 80 more years until the Lord returns or calls you home, at which point he'll start caring for you. That is not the gospel. Rightly understood, the gospel leads all of us to cultivate a humility in our heart and in our lives that says, praise God that by his grace, through my faith in Christ, I know I will be with him for eternity. And praise God that by his grace, through my faith in Christ, he's with me today. I don't have to wait because I've got the indwelling spirit and the presence of Christ and his bride, the church, in my life to help me where I am right now. And I do need it. So one of the ways you, you get, your, your faith works itself out when life is hard is because you have been and you continue to cultivate a gospel-driven humility in your life. Fifth, you look to eternity. You look to eternity. Look at verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. This is where we began the service by singing this, did we not? We sang Christ be magnified. Some of you weren't in here yet. That's okay. Service starts at 10. Praise the Lord. Um, The the first song, some of you are like, there was was a song before. (laughs) I'm teasing. Not really. Um, So, (laughs) sorry. We started off singing Christ be magnified, yes? And it says, death is just a doorway into resurrection life. If I join you in your suffering, then I'll join you when I rise. That's all James is saying here. You keep, while you're here, you keep your eyes on eternity. And, And you understand 
where it is that you're headed. You look to eternity. We live in a right here, right now, instant gratification world. And James is trying to get your eyes up onto eternity. It's the same thing Paul was trying to do in Romans 8.18. He said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. But friends, the air we breathe is right now. Today. This life, this paycheck, this body, this week. We think the goal is here. But God's using here to prepare us for there. And we think the goal is happiness and the absence of trials and faith is tested only rarely and then for a short time. But God's using the testing of your faith to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So if you are a Christian, you have to understand that God is sovereignly accomplishing his purposes through your struggles. So don't rage against them. Let them do their work. Let God accomplish his purposes in your life. Get your eyes up off of them and onto eternity and understand the reasons for them. And if you're not yet a Christian, and I know that not everybody in the room is, can I just encourage you to not waste your struggles? God wants to use them in your life to reveal your need for him and to draw you closer to him so that you might be with him for all of eternity. How do you have faith when life is hard? You look to eternity. But don't mistake James for being one of these Christians that's so heavenly minded that he's no earthly good. You know, some of these folks, like, this is not escapist theology. James is not saying, oh, this world doesn't really matter. It's only the next. He, he's not, don't hear what he's not saying. But James knows that while we may be looking to eternity, we're living in a broken world. And that broken world constantly tries to pull you away from Christ and the truth and your faith and the church and each other. And he knows that saying look to eternity is easier said than done. He knows that the temptation is always going to be to drift from God towards sin. You just understand that concept generally, right? You, you will not casually drift towards God. You will intentionally pursue Him or you will casually drift away from Him and towards the world. There are no other options. You, you, you are not bent to just kick it into neutral and casually make your way towards God. That will not happen. And James knows that. Look at verse 13. He says, so let no one say when he's tempted, not if, when. Let no one say when he or she's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he's lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. So the sixth way to have faith when life is hard is to deconstruct sin. Deconstruct sin. 
For almost all of us, when life gets hard, we have one of two responses. We run from God or we blame God or both. Unless we are leaning in as mature believers into God when life gets hard. And some of you do that. Praise God. But for a lot of us, what happens is when life gets hard, we either run from God or we blame God or both. And so we have a tendency to say, well, if God were real, life would be easier. Therefore, I'm out. Because life's not easy. So I'm out on religion and Jesus and God and the church. I'm gone. Or we say, I believe that there is a God. But honestly, believing in him hadn't really worked out real well for me. So I'm done trying to obey. Because obeying isn't really getting me the life of comfort and luxury that I want. So I'm out. I'm just going to try my own way for a while. And we run away from God. But James deconstructs sin, and he calls on me and you to do the same thing in our life. So he's saying there are these spiritual components to how it is that you need to have faith when life is hard. Change your perspective. You focus on eternity. Like We understand. But then he says, but there's also this practical reality of your own heart that you have to get after. And what he says is the problem is not God's lack of goodness in your life. The problem is not that God isn't protecting you from hardships. That's not the issue, James says. The issue is, the problem is, you have unmet desires. And your desires lead you to sin. And your sin's leading you to death. Spiritually, physically, emotionally, relationally. That's the problem, James says. Can you see the bookend here? Because he began by saying, you have to change your perspective on struggle itself. You have to see the value in and the redeeming path of struggle and trial and hard seasons of life because they lead to a steadfast and enduring faith. That's where he started. And then he says, kind of finishing the thought on the back end, then you have to change how you respond in the struggle. So you change your perspective on it and then you change how you respond in it. So you don't soothe the struggle by sin. You don't decide to numb the trial through rebellion. You don't push back against God's law because things got hard, because your desires are unfulfilled. You deconstruct sin in it so that your head and your heart battle sin, not God. Right? The, 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 the place that we attack is our own sin, not the Lord and his goodness and his character and his trustworthiness. You with me? You have to deconstruct sin, all of which, this kind of bookend thought that begins with changing your perspective and ends with deconstructing your own sin, all of it brings us back to the glue that holds all of it together. The greatest way to have faith when life is hard is to remember the gospel. So remember the gospel. James concludes this kind of opening encouragement. I told you, it comes out of the gate strong, right? A lot of letters, like especially some of Paul's letters, the first couple, two or three paragraphs are just encouragement, right? Go read Philippians. You're like, man, it's awesome, right? And James just comes out with like a jab. He's just right out of the, you know, as soon as the bell rings, bang! He just hits you in the face with trial. But that's life, isn't it? You just wake up in the morning, pop, 
First time you open your social media, jab. Isn't it? You open up your bank account app, you forgot about that automatic draft. Get a phone call you weren't expecting. Go to work and suddenly, that, that's a lot. So James is just living in the real world. He said, man, life's going to be hard. The question is, how do we have faith in it? Right? He concludes this opening encouragement this way in verses 16 to 18. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers, brothers and sisters. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation, no shadow due to change. Of His own will, this is a gospel, of His own will He brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Hear me, friends, God does not cause bad things to happen to you. God is not sending temptation to your life. He, he is not sending evil into your life. He's not withholding good from you. Every good thing in your life is from God. From the air in your lungs to the person that you love the most, to your favorite show and food and that vacation that you have. Like every good thing in your life is from God. And if you are someone who is already in Christ, you have seen your sin and repented of it and trusted not in your own goodness but in Christ's. Or if you're someone who is considering that, and you're exploring the claims of Christ, and you're considering faith, we're about to celebrate the baptism of one who has crossed over that line and into faith. If you're someone who is considering that, James is reminding you that it was God's own will to save you. He chose you. And He's given you His Word. He's given you the truth in order that you might know Him and have faith in His Son and endure the trials of this life because you know that He is in the process of making all things new again. His will for you is that every painful, traumatizing, grief-inducing tear in your life would be wiped away and the joy that your faith clung to through the trials of this life would manifest itself as your reality for all of eternity. That's His will for you. The Old Testament writers said, man, our lives are like the dew on the morning grass, here today and gone by noon. Here in the morning and gone by noon. I, they're like blades of grass that are here today and tomorrow are gone. But eternity, I promise you that 250 trillion years from now, that hard month you had last year, it's gone. That six months of chemo, not even, you don't even remember it. It's untrue. That grief that you carry around, that trauma, that you can't shake, no matter how much counseling. Like, he chose you in Christ. And he's using those things in your life to make you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing for all of eternity. So how do you have faith when life is hard? 
You change your perspective on the struggle itself. You build your endurance in it. You ask for wisdom to get through it. You cultivate humility because of it. It does its work in your heart. You look past it to eternity. You deconstruct your own sin as a response to it. And you remember the gospel in spite of it. Until such time as he makes you perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. And that day is coming. Let's pray. Father, we're so thankful for our brother James that you would, by the inspiration of your spirit, lead him to write a letter that is as relevant in 2022 as it was in 43 or 5 AD. Only the wisdom of God could yield that type of help for us. And so we praise you for your word, for songs that drive these truths deep into our hearts, for the joy that we cling to when life is hard. And we pray as you have told us to for wisdom. And you promised that if we would ask without doubting, it would be given to us. And so we pray for that your promise would be true in our lives. That we would understand how to have faith when life is hard. That your grace would abound among us. That we would be a church that is a safe place to land for people who are in seasons of hardship pray that outside social and cultural and, and economic and political pressures would not divide us, would not divide your church. So we pray actively against that. But that by your grace, what would unite us is the truth of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to the King's Cross Church podcast. We hope that you were encouraged by the Word of God today. Take a moment to click the subscribe button on your screen, and you won't have to come searching for us next time. Until then, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.